Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 303 and part two of my conversation with Northern Michigan University's longtime percussion professor, as well as historian for the Percussive Arts Society, Jim Strain. Let's get right to it. Last week on part one, which I hope you've already listened to, Jim talked about his job at Northern Michigan, living in the Upper Peninsula, being aware and accepting opportunities, growing up in the South, and his time in undergrad and graduate school in Arkansas, Ohio, and New York. This week on part two, we talk more about his time at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and the Eastman School of Music, his teaching years at Kansas State University prior to his time at Northern Michigan, and our usual close to the podcast, where we get to a lot, including some wonderful examples of Jim's historical knowledge and outreach, which you do not want to miss. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 17th, 2022, and it begins right now. So within these programs, within studying with Jared, within studying with the um, with Jim and the Cincinnati, and then John Beck, what are the things that that make are similar or different about either teaching styles or materials or focuses that you gather from those places? Realizing obviously you're at a different age for all of these things and kind of a different mental. Area, I guess. Um, I, I do have to mention that I did also study um, that summer where I at, at Cincinnati when I did the summer courses in between the two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al was the only one that taught in the summer, and I and I did lessons with him that summer. Sure. And I also feel like I spent lots of time with Bill, mm-hmm. um, you know, with with all of that. So I I would not limit my what I learned to just Jim's teaching um, on that. Jim did the ensemble, which was a really interesting thing as well. And and I can't discount either the significant people that I was in graduate school with at, at both of those schools. Mm-hmm. Um, Eastman is really weird because, because there were so many students that were there during the year, but they'd leave in the summer and I wouldn't see them. And I might not even meet them, but they're just names. You know, they're names on a wall, their names um, between the other people that are there in the summer. And it just goes for many, many years there. And there's also a pretty strong connection between Eastman and Cincinnati. A lot of people do one degree one and they just switch and do the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can't, I can't tell you how many have done that, but there's significant numbers. My interactions with some of those people, and it, especially if I do Cincinnati, mm-hmm. like some of the graduate students there, I spent a lot of time with as students. And Jack Brennan is one of those people. Jack is the timpanist in um, the Indianapolis Symphony. Prior to that, he was in Buffalo. Jack and I did several pieces together. Um, one of them I remember doing for my master's recital was Knocking Piece. And do you know Knocking Piece by Ben Johnson? Uh, it's, if I do, I, I I don't remember it. It's okay if you don't. It, it's fine. But knocking piece is is played on the inside of a grand piano by two percussionists, okay. and it has 
a melodic melody that's converted into the intervallic relationship between the next pitch as ratios of the vibrations of that pitch. The entire thing is metric modulation, measure by measure, of two against three, five against four, seven against 11, this. And you have to orchestrate it yourself. So all you have are these two lines. And it's a long piece of these rhythms. And like you'll have two players, let's say you have, let's say you have five against four. And when you get to the end of that five against four, the five turns into a three. And the three goes against, say, eight on the bottom. So it's constantly shifting all of these speeds and slowing down and speeding up all these polymeters going on with all of that. And as you're orchestrating it for the inside of a grand piano. Jack and I spent all summer sitting on a piano bench facing each other, trying to work out all of these polyrhythms before we ever got to a piano and said, well, let's figure out what sounds we want with all of this. And again, this is before the internet. You probably can Google this now and hear all kinds of recordings. I'm not even sure if the piece had been recorded at that time. You You can go on now and there'll be one person playing it by themselves on two screens with multiple camera angles um, with all of that. So the difference in teaching style, and and yes, I was at very different stages. What I would say with my bachelor's degree is that I had the issue of me being a really great snare drummer. I didn't really want to play drum set. And there were a half a dozen keyboard mallet players, most of them female, Mm-hmm. who could just play rings around me. So in a lot of ways, it was like, okay, I've got to play catch up to really learn how to play a marimba solo or to play these xylophone parts in band or orchestra or something like that. Even though I could, and what I would say is I, I'm gifted, I suppose, I'm blessed, I don't know, to have a really good memory for music. In high school, the only time I would play any of the keyboard parts in an ensemble someplace band or orchestra or something like that was if for some reason the keyboard player couldn't seem to play them so i would just go right over and learn the part and just do it from memory it, it just took me like almost no time to know just how all that stuff went mm-hmm. uh, on that um and i'm still that way in a lot of ways and then at other times i say i need to keep my memory i need to keep space in my head for memory so i don't need to memorize this i can just read it that brings an issue there of me being a marimba player by in graduacy my bat my master's degree i was a marimba player <laughs> yeah i had i spent the whole you know i saw lee stevens play i said that's what i want to do i spent, spent a summer at interlock and practicing when i everyone thought i was a marimba player it wasn't until i probably played something on snare drum that they said wow like i didn't know you could play snare drum mm-hmm. and i said well yeah that's what i am it's like so I also studied with another teacher there that was the jazz instructor. I studied with him drum set, but I wasn't interested in being a great drum set player. What I said to him is, I'm going to be a college professor. I'm going to have to teach drum set. Can we do lessons to learn jazz drumming, rock drumming, drumming pedagogy? I want to know how to teach drum set. He was great at it. 
you know, and yes, in the process of learning to teach drum set, he taught me how to be a really great drum set player. I'd already played a lot of drum set. I had a, I put a band together when I was in college to, to, to live and pay for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it a very successful band. I had all the money I needed in college. We played the whole Mid-South area. We, we would play gigs in Tennessee and Missouri and um, Arkansas, Mississippi. I used to play Illinois some even from, from there, drive all the way up there for weekend sort of thing. Just um, playing like rock and roll covers stuff? It was, a, it was a cover band. It was the worst. This is the late 70s. Mm-hmm. It's the worst time period you could be. It's disco era. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, we did. It was a horn band. It's a big band. You know, we played Earth, Wind & Fire, Chicago um blood sweat and tears you know all of that sort of stuff we did a little bit of original we had a great female singer she could sing anything and an, another male singer that did all of that so and we made a lot of money that's all i can say uh, that was back when people had live bands for proms for um for fraternities and sororities a wedding they'd have a live band clubs all over the mid-south you know and and so it was great Mm. with that so even though i had done all of that what i wanted to be able to do is to teach drum set give me all of these methods and he went right through all these method books and said here's how you do it and i learned all of that stuff from him on that i learned um nothing nothing more important than the way things are supposed to sound and here's all the music you never heard of from al adi he never played anything that wasn't Here's what it sounds like. Right. You know, he wasn't worried about how do you make it sound that way as much as here's what it sounds like. And of course, that includes my exposure at that time to just dozens and dozens and dozens of percussion techniques on strange instruments and all of that. Right. Um, With all of that. Jim was a marimba player for me. Like he, you know, there's a great ear, super great musician. I would just be working. I I probably learned and played every piece ever written for marimba in those two years at that time. <laughs> you would just have to look at a literature list. And I probably had gone through every single piece, either played it or worked on it enough to say, I'm not going to play this for this reason, whatever. Right. The only exception to that was I really never got into concertos much at all. <laughs> the reason is I did not see the practicality of learning concertos because I was not planning to play concertos with an orchestra or anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was very limited as far as that goes. Sure. I got you. But solo solo literature, everything. And again, Lee and Lee and Gordon were the ones churning out commissions and all of that sort of stuff. You were saying when you were doing your doctorate over a course of a decade, approximately, you were there for summers, but you did it. You do have to do the one year residency, right? Yes. Do you, who was with you at, at Eastman that year? This is always hard for me to remember who was actually there. Jimmy Tiller was there. That's probably who he and I were both grad students. Do you know who Jimmy is? Do you know? No, that they. Okay, he, he's he's principal percussionist in the Rochester Philharmonic. Okay. So he stayed there and you know took Bill's place yep. um, at that point. And I get confused. See, the other thing is like I would see some of these people in the summers and everything. So I forget who's there. Sure. Um, there's a few people that I can tell you specifically were students. Um, and I directed what, what I did is I directed the, um, the, the, the I think it was a freshman, sophomore percussion ensemble. Mm-hmm. I taught the methods course. And JB had this way of where you taught um, 
every other lesson for some of the majors, but I can't remember if it was the the freshman majors or the sophomore and freshman sophomore or juniors and seniors or of all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's quite a few that sort sort of like that. Two people I stay in touch with a lot that were there at that time are Tom Malloy and um, Glenn Paulson. Do you know who they are? They're both Marine band. I feel like I've heard of Paulson's name, but I don't know if I've. Glenn's in the Marine band. He also was timpanist um, with. Mallorca, Madrid, Barcelona. Barcelona uh, I think Barcelona. I think he did Barcelona. He, he went and studied with, um, with Buster Bailey. Okay. Um, did that. Tom actually joined the, um, I think he was in the Air Force band before he won the Marine Band audition and was actually able to get out of one service and get into the other, mm. which is just unheard of, that sort of stuff. I would see all these people walking, you know, walking. Sure, yeah. You can see them and they're in your brain. Yeah, I got you. What people know for Eastman is is more the oral exams than the than like a finishing document or anything like that. Was that the case for you as well? Are you talking about the difficulty of my oral yes. exams? Yes. Um, I do remember them being a hurdle, yes. Um, I also was, um, I think the written exams are worse than the orals for mm. me. In other words, I, I remember one question that I got stuck on a little bit. One person didn't like one of my answers on the oral. And I remember another question where, for whatever reason, I left Beethoven out of this long string of, of answers of things. But what was unusual about me was I actually did a full dissertation mm. for my doctorate. The musicology people were not very inclined to have a performance major do a full dissertation. The option at that time was to do three short papers that qualified for that, one each for some music history kind of class. Mm-hmm. I was doing research on my own for things that I was just, again, curious about. Sure, yeah. And was taking a course with one professor, a musicology professor. And I don't know why I ended up just talking to him about something. And he at some point just said something to me like, like, um, what are you doing this weekend? Maybe it was Friday or something. I don't know, or something. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually going to drive down to New York City um, because I've, I've been able, I'm going to get to go into the Carl Fisher archives. And he looked at me like, what? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going down into the art. He said, nobody gets in those. What are you doing? And I said, well, I was, you know, I wrote a letter. <laughs> I, I, I found this, this music I'm researching. I wrote a letter to them and it just so happened that John was publishing something with Carl Fisher and he happened to be on the phone with this guy when I was, in his office during my lesson, which he often was with everyone's lesson <laughs> on that. And he and he said, oh, and by the way, I have a student here, this so-and-so. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I got a letter on that. Let me talk to him. And so I was given this. And so this, this, this musicology professor, he said to me, he said, what are you doing? Why are you going down there? 
And I said, oh, I've got like this stuff here. I'm researching this and this and this. And, and I explained to him all of this music for xylophone that had been written in the 1800s that no one had ever heard of. You know, just hundreds and hundreds of pieces for xylophone with full orchestras and full bands and all of this stuff. And it wasn't any of the recorded stuff that people were aware of that like Bill Kahn had done his recordings book and all of that. It wasn't really that, but then some of it was. So anyway, and he looked at it, he said, how much of this have you, have you got put together? And I said, Oh, I've got this and this and all of this. He said, are you getting credit for this? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm just doing it because, and he said, you should be getting credit for this. You're writing a dissertation. And I said, okay. <laughs> and then then, um, then he basically just talked me into it and he ran the whole thing through and I got to write a full dissertation. Then my question to you would be, have you seen my dissertation? Because most people haven't. It's on xylophone. I had to do, I don't, probably not because I, I looked at everything that was marimba at the time. Mm-hmm. So I saw everyone, if anyone did anything that was marimba related, I saw it when I was writing mine in the early 2000s. So, but yeah. if yours had no marimba in it, then I didn't. It, it would, there would be no real reference to it other than there are marimba bands or the music often is xylophone or marimba, something like that. So I, I don't remember. It's possible, but I, yeah. I can't remember now. And um, I've never marketed the thing really. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are people that will write and say, somebody said, I would need to read your dissertation. And for a while, I kept a stack of, I don't know, maybe 25 copies of it or something that I would just mail to people if they wanted to. I say, cover postage, you can have it. I never expect. I wrote it to be a book on the shelf. It's a really great read. You can sit down and read it one in one, one sitting. Mm. But then half of it is music. Sure. And discussions of the music and all of that. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, he said that. So I ended up doing this. And it was a lot. It was a hard. It was hard because. I was doing a serious musicology dissertation that the head of the musicology originally said no to me. And this other professor had to say, I'll be your advisor. I'll take you through here and I'll do all that. Now, you have to understand that this particular person at the time was the editor for the um, American Musicological Society Journal. Oh, there you go. And he, boy, he taught me how to write. That's all I can say. And he totally kept me in, in, in line to get it all done in a timely manner um, and all that. So it was a great experience doing that. Um, JB helped me with every single thing I felt like I needed. Mm-hmm. Just a super great ear. Um, and one of the things I remember specifically is uh, an issue I brought up with you, which was I was playing a lot when I got out of college. I was playing a lot in college. Everybody does. But I was playing in the Memphis Symphony. I was playing in pickup orchestras all over. I was doing studio work in Memphis. I had a chamber ensemble that I put together. We were recording and um, we, we were on TV routinely. We were playing for all the all-state region clinics and things like that, a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. I would still go on stage or I would get a call to do a, a theater show someplace. And it'd be like, man, I just don't feel comfortable playing all these xylophone parts. Like, Mm-hmm. There's not enough time to memorize it when you don't even rehearse it. They just say, here's the book, ready, go, you know, and, and it happens like that. And so I remember for a few years, I went to JB and I just said, you know, I just can't read as well as I want to. Mm-hmm. 
And we spent a couple of summers, I remember definitely doing that. And the process is simple. I bought an instrument. You heard it last last month. Yeah. I bought an instrument. I put it in my second bedroom. I bought every piece of music I could think of that I might be that might be similar to what I needed, and I put it on a music stand. I came home every day and I started on page one and I read. And when I finished my hour of doing that, I stopped right there and put the mallets down, got in the car, and went to symphony rehearsal. <laughs> doing that for two years, yeah. I could read. Yeah, and that's all it is to it. Just like I can memorize things because I've been doing that for years. Right. And so there is no shortcut to it. There's no real thing. You learn a few hints, but it is matter of fact of one, get your instrument. You can just be in the same place all the time and it's all right there and you can just walk by and do it. And it's the same size keys all the time and you don't have to put it all together and yeah. get your book to read. Yeah. And don't stop. Start at the beginning and go all the way through and turn the page. Yeah. And if you want to learn one of those, go back and say, I'm going to learn this one. And that's a different process. How long were you at Kansas State? Either three or four years. I can't remember which one it is now. I'd have to look at my resume or something. Um, it, it, was a, it was a serious time of transition for the band program at Kansas State. Because mm -hmm. you, um, you said you were associate director of bands or something like that. That was It was that primarily? It wasn't percussion or was... No, it, was, it, was du it was dual. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even, I mean, in other words, it was one of those things of that position. It, there was, there was a director of bands and two associate directors. Gotcha. And the way that the parts were split out at that time is the director of bands pretty much was, would, was doing all of the director of bands. So everything was band related. Yeah. Then the second position was assist with the bands, you know, associate director of the bands or whatever. And do the jazz ensembles. Right. So that and jazz. And the other and the other one was band and percussion. Of the three positions, mm -hmm. um, the the year before I was hired, the director of bands who also did percussion, um, he had some very quickly declining um, health issues. And so the second his associate that did jazz moved into the first position. And then they hired another associate to do percussion. And that was me. Mm -hmm. um, and then we hired another one that did associate and jazz. The person who moved into the full-time position there, he only had his master's. He had not completed a doctorate. So he couldn't stay there. So we then, the next year I got there, we then put an advertisement out for a new director of bands. He was going to move back into his jazz position. <laughs> okay. So that was a one-year appointment on the jazz guy. And so all I can say is it kept going around and around. And for I think if I was there three years, so if that's my position, we had three people in that, and we had three people in that. So like seven people for nine positions, and I'm the only one there that was three. It might have just been two there, but but it was one of those things. That, and then what happened was the new director of bands came in. And just to be honest, he also was a percussionist, but he wasn't teaching percussion, wasn't interested in that. But he was also not interested in someone who was doing percussion stuff more than they were doing what he wanted them to do with the band. Sure. 
he and and that was a very a very destructive situation for everybody and i thought i had it all worked out where where i could move move out of the band area and the next opening that came up he could hire whoever he wanted assistant that was all agreement with the department head and all that sort of stuff and then you know i just got called in and said your job's gone you know you're leaving. we're not going to renew your contract after next year huh like and then there's a whole long interesting story that i'll share with you personally sometime but i won't go through but needless to say whoever followed me in that position it would be really interesting to have he and i um, interview and and talk through the whole thing because it's like yeah it's someone that you know and someone that i know and is it kurt no oh, okay he's, he's even another one after that okay gotcha okay so so anyway the whole the whole thing of what happens with jobs when you don't get tenure sort oh, of right mm -hmm. and for and what are the reasons and how does that work so you were like i this is getting to be too much i need to i need to find something well you you weren't renewed so you needed to find another job Right. In other words, I, you know, I thought it was all worked out and it was fine. And I would continue doing the percussion stuff. The percussion stuff was all great. I was teaching, as I said, a comprehensive theory, history thing, the music appreciation thing. Sometimes percussion methods course. Mm -hmm. um, I had just gotten married and all of that. So I'll tell you another fact, too, is that that's a non-union school. I think there is a union there, but it's not really very strong. Mm -hmm. And we would do our, our load reports every year. Mm -hmm. And every year I came up with about 150% load. And it's all written in there. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm starting to do serious research and stuff as well and publications and all of that. I might have been, yeah, I probably became historian at that time. I was writing, I used to write a ton of things, um, all of that. So professionally, I was playing in the Topeka Symphony. I was principal percussionist. And one year I was timpanist. Um, and I was doing, you know, freelancing in Kansas city and stuff like that. And that's a pretty good drive. Yeah. So anyway, it's, uh, again, it's a very busy career. It's not just, I'm just doing my teaching job and that's all there is. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was like one of these life-saving things where IU opens up and has a job during that year when I'm sort of a lame duck teacher and they're interviewing other people for my job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, yeah. most of most of whom I know. Right. OK. And there's lots of funny stories there. I won't go into all of those right now. Um, but somewhere at the end of a, the end of the year there, I got a call. You know, we'd like you to come interview for this job at IU. Yeah. And I had to drop a few things and do do some traveling stuff and all that. And I went and interviewed. Most of the interview was actually a significant amount of time of playing and the students listening and you talking to the students and doing masterclass sort of stuff. Jerry Carlos was just wonderful. He was uh, head of the department. It was just really great, you know, with all of that. When I got there, there, there was a, a student that I had known um, from another school um, that was there. Rob Patterson was there. Um, who's a composer, has written some percussion things, six mallet player. Um, he was there. And after the, I don't know who else interviewed. I can't remember who else interviewed, how many people they interviewed. But mm -hmm. I remember him talking to me later about saying, you know, that Bach fugue that you played, like, that's like you're the only person that played like a real piece of music. He just kept talking about how the music is supposed to go in music instead of talking about technique sort of stuff right. and all of that. 
I think that's what I'm, if I'm going to say anything about my teaching and my performing in my life is that I learned what things are supposed to sound like. Mm-hmm. The technique is very secondary to that. Un- and then on the other side of that is I don't know what it's like on most things to not be able to technically do it pretty easy. Um, there are a few things it's like, man, I just can't do that. You know, mm-hmm. like if you take one stick, you go dig it, 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 dig it. Mm-hmm. Like with that snare, like uh, I've got students that can do that. It's like, I just can't get that going. So yeah, yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what's not going on there, but the snare drum technique, the timpani technique, mallet, two mallet, four mallet, all of that. I just have a very relaxed, natural flowing sort of style of what I play. And I always have with that. So I don't talk technique with people unless it seems really serious. I talk about make it sound like this on that. So the Kansas years were good, except for the really serious, just headbutting of of one year. The next year, it wasn't that any big deal. And it was I pulled, you know, that last year I was there, I was, you know, just just teaching and all that and, and looking for jobs. My wife was an elementary school teacher, music teacher at that time. And I could have just, just I didn't have to work. I, we could just live on her salary the next year if necessary. That was the backup plan at that time. And like I said, she moved in and and got a went to her master's in performance at at IU the next year. But we had just been married a year. She had actually left a teaching job in in Washington State, and she'd actually gotten one of the open teaching jobs in Manhattan, Kansas. On that, so you know, she's a very successful person, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, that sort of process. All right, Jim, I finished up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. First question, not random, but what's an issue in percussion education, percussion performance, something that gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? What drives me the most nuts in my job mm-hmm. is the equipment management. Sure. Does that fall into your category of that Absolutely. question? Mm-hmm. It absolutely is just um, a never-ending, a never-ending, this job isn't finished, somebody else is making my job harder. And even when it's going just like it's supposed to be, it's still based on my university, the setup of where the performance halls are, the lack of planning on other faculty people, Um I assume, and I assume that you didn't say this, but I'm, my guess is you don't have grad students, right? No, there's not. It's just an undergrad. It's a four-year school as far as music goes. They did have a grad program here quite a while ago um, before I was here. And I actually, when I interviewed, one of the things that I did, which I would always put on a list for anyone interviewing at a job, is I went and looked at the library to see mm-hmm. what library materials it had. Um, that gives you a hint of how much does the university as whole and the library systems support the music department? Right. Um, and yeah, there's just shelves and shelves and shelves and it's everything you need for a grad program because they used to have a grad program in music. I don't know how long ago, but quite a while. So that's what more than anything, that's a headache for me. Not only is it a headache, but even when it's going normal, it's just like, okay, here's one more Friday afternoon. I have to organize and haul all of this stuff from here to there to set it all up and perform. Um, I very much miss the days maybe when I was at Eastman and there was a stage manager that actually did all of that, you know, professional union sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
on that. And which I would which I would also say is my experience with that while I was at Eastman and in the summers, I mean, I would play with the RPO um, as extra with that. And some of the so, talking about who do I who was I in school with? Well, in many ways, I was in school with Bill and Ruth Kahn. Um, you know, same time studying with 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 JB. And I don't know that I ever finished saying how great John was just to tell me and provide for me everything I needed at whatever time. Um, the opportunities more than anything, just a great ear to play right through things and that sort of stuff. His best comment to me one time in percussion ensemble, I played it, I was playing timpani in this ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. I came in like, a measure earlier than I was supposed to or something. And he stopped and he said, you're a measure early. I said, yeah, I knew I was doing that. He said, well, if you knew you were doing it, why didn't you just wait and do it in the right spot? It's like, and he's right. Like, it's like when you know it's wrong, yet you go ahead and do it anyway. Right. So. Like everyone's going to, everyone's going to just adjust to you who screwed up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Other questions. Uh, Jim, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I would say many people have done that. Um, And the impression that they do um, is we do a mass band performance here at Northern every year. I'm going to guess and say there's 25 high schools. Mm -hmm. Everybody on the field. It's just block. We don't do much of anything. Right. But the way that the director does it is puts everybody on the field, marches them off the field, on the field, off the field one more time, and then he sends them all to sectionals. We have the largest wooden dome in the world on my campus. So there's this big, huge dome. The football field's inside. Okay, got it. We are in a pretty cold climate. Mm -hmm. Connected to the dome is another physical ed facility where there are volleyball and basketball courts. Mm -hmm. So my choice is either what's the weather like? And if the weather is okay, meaning it's not snowing and you probably won't freeze in an hour, we go out the end of the football field, the big door opens where the loading trucks can come in and drop stuff off in this big multi-facility thing. The football field just rolls up on a big roller at the end of, you know, 150 yards away. <laughs> so I take them outside typically and I do, there's a parking lot immediately outside. And I do, I do all of these drum lines all together mm-hmm. and they're organized on field by instrument. So that we don't keep the schools that they're all in the middle. So put them in a big circle. It goes all the way around. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's like, you know, like 50 bass drums and, you know, 20 snares. And I don't know how many it's like. Sure. So, got you, yeah. so I go out there and I go out with a coffee and a megaphone, mm-hmm. probably a coat or a jacket too. And rehearse through like the five or six pieces that we're doing. Yeah. And then they all come back in. So the high school students, they will see me like three or four years before they get here, and then it's in college, okay? And this includes the fact that I've had my children go through the high school here, my stepkids. Yeah, yeah. All three of them were in the band. They're all drummers. Um, and actually, like, the youngest didn't get to high school before, so he actually just moved. So, mm-hmm. so but I, a lot of students that know me and everything, and we have this one person who is our band's biggest fan. 
fan. And he's someone that I met probably 15 years ago, something like that. And he's been out of high school a few years. And he's one of these people that was a little bit older because he's mentally of an, an autistic nature kind of mm-hmm. and super cool. He remembers everything, you know, it's, and he knows everything about my life. You know, he asks me and he remembers it. And he comes up and reminds me all the time. And he has this invitation that he does with a megaphone and a cup of coffee in my Southern. Now you have to understand, I don't live in the South. Yeah. I, live, I live in the UP. It is a very strange accent. You know, if you think the Fargo, North Dakota accent is unusual, you got to get into Minnesota or you can get into the Duyupa. You know, it's it's very weird. So anyway, he does a great one like that. And he will do that every year now. And everybody will just laugh because the, he knows exactly what I'm going to say about like, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. So, yes. I'm sure there are many other students, but I tried to avoid them, and 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 I'm honored that they would take waste their time figuring out how to do my southern twang mm-hmm. sort of stuff. No, nah, that's great. <laughs> Very cool. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Does that mean I never wear it? It could be anything, but... Sure. It could be just something that's, yeah, it's been in the closet for. Oh, well, I, yeah, I'll show you. This is my, my most impractical. Oh, sweet. Okay. I have my impractical clothing here. Wait, let me, I, let me show you a practical and an impractical one. Oh, we got a comparison. Very exciting. Yes. This is my most impractical one. Okay. Jim is holding a classic marching band uniform. From the 60s, mm-hmm. 70s. You know, nice. I used to have the Shaco. Nice. I do not know where the Shaco went. Okay. So you do have to say this kind of looks like Michael Jackson. Uh, yeah. I mean, it looks like kind of, it looks Beatles-ish too. Yes. But that's what I'm saying. You have to go back into the 60s and the very early 70s, Michael Jackson, like when he used to wear these sort of things. Now, the, the reason this is impractical mm-hmm. is because if I hold it up next to me, you can see that there is no way I can ever get into this. Uh-huh. And so I have no idea why I keep it. Gotcha. But I keep, you know, I have a bunch of what I would say are costumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I've always done that. Now, you should ask Steve Houghton. Okay. The, when the first time he met me was. And okay. what does he remember? Now, that's your assignment. Or okay. anyone else's assignment, uh-huh. and see if he doesn't say something about this. Okay. Okay, so that's impractical. Gotcha. About the old marching band costume that, to me, looks like the Beatles. Okay. Got yeah, it. you just have to ask. You just have to ask him if he remembers the first time he met me. He might. He he probably should. I think. Okay. This is my most practical one. Okay. okay. Also, marching band like. But do you know what this uniform is? That's probably one of your the Civil War or Revolutionary War. This is the Revolutionary War uniform. It's exactly what you have in the Old Guard Marine or Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Gotcha. It's revolutionary, and it's the color of a musician. And this actually came from there. Gotcha. Nice. Now, let me explain simply. Red coat with navy blue 
the lapels and facings facings is what those are called facings excuse me okay it's okay that but i if somebody actually knows uniform parts okay. from that time so let me explain being a historian there was a point in my life when my grandmother said to me you should take this stuff and read it i think you're the only grandchild of mine that would be interested in it mm-hmm. and i said well what is it she said it's your grandfather's memoirs I said, okay. So I started reading it and it seriously got me hooked on where do we come from? Mm-hmm. So I'm a genealogist. One of my favorite ancestors. I have two favorites I'll tell you about. Okay. About an hour from where I was born in Mississippi is a cemetery that my ancestors, one of my families lived in. And there's a big, um, big marker there. And it's one of my grandmothers and she's married and she has her married name and it says her maiden name and gives her parents, both mother and father's full names and tells you what county she was born at in South Carolina. Okay. You can go right from there back to South Carolina. You can find that family right there. And her dad was a drummer in the Revolutionary War, documented, and he was apparently an itinerant, but a music teacher. Okay, nice. Okay, now that is my connection to the whole history thing and why I do some of it is because, wow, I have an ancestor from the Revolutionary War that was a drummer. Mm -hmm. And that story, you you appreciate that story. Mm -hmm. And... That story, along with this next one, my other favorite ancestor, will draw students in no matter how old they are. They can be eight or 80. Mm -hmm. They will just stop and listen and wait for you to finish telling them all kinds of history things because I've got this drum on that they're waiting for me to play this drum. Mm -hmm. And I'm wearing this uniform that looks like George Washington. Right. I didn't get the hat and the wig out, but I could do that. And it goes great with my beard, too, with the curls. <laughs> so my other favorite relative. Ooh, I wonder if I let me see if I can get him. OK, all right. <laughs> OK, Pete, you're in luck. All right. You know what this bill is called? A hundred dollar bill, a C note. I don't know what. Yep, those are all correct. Have you ever heard it called a Franklin? Mm hmm. Okay, well, this is a Franklin. Yeah. This is my cousin, Ben. Oh. He's my first cousin, 12 generations away. Wow. His his grandfather is my grandfather. On his mother's side. Okay. That is super cool. (laughs) It is very super cool. Yeah. But you know what? You know why it's so cool? is because I can do this in that uniform. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I say, all of you know my cousin. Everybody knows, it doesn't matter how, they can be 8 to 80, they have heard of Benjamin Franklin. Right. Now, what they don't know is that Benjamin Franklin is important in music. Do you know that? I do not. There's an instrument that he invented called the glass harmonica. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. There is one of those that we think is authentic in the Philadelphia Museum on there. It made people crazy. It's interesting to read about that. He was very articulate about his musical preferences and what he knew. 
Mm-hmm. He wrote significant biographies and things. And then a really cool thing is that he actually was in London at the last performance and watched the last performance of Handel's Messiah when Handel conducted. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, I've just drawn you into a piece that everybody knows as well. Yeah. So, hallelujah, it's working. So, that's, <laughs> that's why that uniform is relevant, because I can go into places... And people just stop and listen. Right. And then you get to play for them. And they remember that. I've had people, I had a student about four years ago that said, I just figured out who you were. And I said, what do you mean you figured out who I was? She said, you're Clara's stepdad. Now, this is a freshman in college, maybe a sophomore in college. And she Uh says to me, "You're, you're Clara's stepdad, aren't you? I said, yes. I said, how did you figure that out? I just put two and two together because Clara's stepdad came when we were in the eighth grade and played in a uniform. And that's that drawing over there just reminded me. And somebody just said, oh, you do all of that stuff. And you've got that rope drum right there. And you came to my class in the eighth grade and you played for us and talked about American history. That's that's really cool. OK, was that a, was that a random enough? That answer was great. That was great. On that? That was great. Well, and it's. I think if you wore the outfit without the drum, I don't think it would like you. You need to bring them in with the instrument because they're going to want to hear it. Yes, you know. I think yes. you. So you've obviously you've clearly like figured out the right order to do this. Very much. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't tell you when. Like, I'll finish talking and I'll say, "Okay, are there any questions?" You know what the first question is almost all the time. No. Nope. Are you going to play the drum? Oh, you oh you haven't played yet. Okay. <laughs> you finish all the talking. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then I'll say, no, you are. And whoever that is, I'll say, come up here and I'll put the thing on them and I'll, and I'll make them play it. And then I'll play. Mm. Nice. That's great. That's great. It's I fun. People are fun. Yeah. Yeah. I And I that's... That's to me what's fun about I, – because I, I've been fortunate to be teaching music history a little bit now also. And I think that like stuff like – like I find that stuff – I think music history is enormously fun to, to, to talk about and to kind of bring people in. And it's hard too. It's hard to get people interested in music that they perhaps don't like or don't understand. Right. Or – so there has to be a connection someplace. And that's why I'm fortunate with drums because every one of those wars everywhere, there's music in it. Yeah. Yeah. And most of it's drum kind of stuff. Right. Um, Civil war is good with that. Mm -hmm. You know, revolutionary war. I wish I had horse and timpani I could ride in on sometimes. (laughs) Gotcha. Next time that's coming. That's, that's a, that's a, a retirement project also. I suppose I'm, you know, I just need a bigger dog I can ride on. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, other questions. Do you, I, I wonder if I've, I wonder if I had asked you this once, um, but cause this is not a, this is not a music question, but do you have a, I don't even know if you're a sports fan or do you have a sports fandom considering all the places that you kind of you've lived I would say, um, no, Mm -hmm. I explain it like this. When your job requires you to be at X number of games 
throughout a year, mm-hmm. then the last thing I want to do on a, a, a Sunday is watch more football. Basically, a day, a day, a day that I'm that I don't have to do football or hockey or basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not likely to do it. That what that doesn't mean though is it doesn't mean I don't understand all of them and know all about them and have lots of information sure. and I have mm-hmm. lots of good stories and things like that. Um, I did spend a significant amount of my life. I don't know how many years, 15, maybe something like that. Probably more. It could have been 20 of uh, being a very active tennis player. Oh, okay. That was my, what I, what I come back to is that that's my sport that I like to participate in. And I kind of would watch it over some years, but again, I'm an awful spectator. <laughs> you, you've mentioned I, this, uh, this, I, this track. <laughs> I do not like watching other people do things. I like to just do my things and the people watch me, but I like to sit and observe and learn things. Sure. Uh, if that makes any sense. So anyway, I spent a lot of time playing tennis. Okay. Um, and um, what were you playing? Was this singles, doubles? What were you doing? Mostly singles, but there was a time period in New York when I would go there in the summers. Mm-hmm. Um, I had several friends that I had met there that um, were older guys. One guy was actually an, a writer for Tennis Magazine a good bit, which I didn't know for several years. And then he finally started talking about something. I said, what are you talking about? Like that? He said, oh, yeah, like I, I like write for Tennis Magazine. And I said, oh, no wonder you like actually sound like you know what you're talking about and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but but that was my that was my my sporting outlet. I also was for many years an avid biker. Just, okay. uh, you know, bicycle. A sure. lot of that. I grew up doing that. There were, I was one of the first people in town that had a 10 speed. I'm old enough to remember when they didn't have 10 speed bikes, mm-hmm. you know, like that. So I used to, you know, miles and miles and miles of, of biking sort of stuff. So, so there's all those sort of things that that's kind of it. Yeah. Um, my favorite sports story, if you want to hear a good one, sure. when I was at K-State once a year, we go over to the Chiefs and we play halftime for a Chiefs game. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went over one year, and the the way that that works is you you get to rehearse on the field like prior to any of the stadium opening up. So it's kind of that, and then you go off and change into uniforms and come back. Yep. So <clears throat> we got there, and um, we were rehearsing, and I was like over on the side waiting for the band to come around and face whatever. I'm not really sure. I got over to the side and I'm just standing there like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just and standing like this. Yep. And then I noticed somebody comes up from behind my shoulder kind of and stands right next to him. And I look and I said, and, and, and the guy says, well, how's the band's looking good? You guys, you know, already you have a good trip over. I said, Yes, it's really good. I said, Joe, it's like nice to see you. It's like you all ready for the game today. Good luck. And it's Joe Montana. I was about to say, it's like it was when you would, when you set it up, I actually was like, I think this is right around when they had Montana. And they did. And, and, and he came to watch band rehearsal. He came out, he came out, and he, and he stood there and watched the band rehearsal a little while. And I said, it's, you know, have a good game. It's really good to see you. And Mm-hmm. And thank you for coming out, you know, that sort of stuff. He said, y'all have a good trip and, and all that. And thank you. you know, it's just a very short kind of casual conversation. Nice. 
And then he went back in, you know, and whenever the band finished whatever drill it was and whatever, and, and the director said, oh, okay, like so-and-so, man, half the band just came to mob me. Right. You know, it's like, well, that was Joe Montana's blah, blah, blah. I said, well, yeah, like, uh, yeah. You know, just like, of course, it's like, and I'm, I've never been a person that's like, what would I say? Enamored by famous people. Sure. You know, they're just people, you know, and once you meet a whole bunch of them, you realize, oh, it's just, yeah, they hate all that. So anyway, um, and then, then like somebody said, did you get his autograph? I said, well, you know, he didn't ask for mine. So I didn't see any reason to ask for his. Nice. <laughs> and then they're just like, oh. <laughs> so that's my, that's my, that's my interesting conversation about, you know, sporting kind of stuff. No, that's good. That's a, that's a good one. What part? I'm curious. What what time? Do you remember what time of year that was? Was that like late in the season, or was it like it was just like sometime in the fall? And it was. I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. Got it. I mean, it would be. I I would think that it was in the fall. I would think. I don't know that it would be. I I the reason I say I think it would be in the fall is because I don't ever remember doing any marching band stuff after a bowl game. Right. Sure. Okay. So, so yeah. that would be my answer to that. Okay. How was your tennis game? My, my, are you asking my tennis ability? Yeah. Yeah. It's scout yourself. Yeah. How were you as a player? At the junior college where I worked. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, I had to drive past the tennis courts to go from the fine arts building. I do like one block down past a couple other buildings and make a left turn. And the tennis courts were on the right side there for a long block. And then I go another long block and my, and my faculty apartment housing was right there. Mm. Often I would make that trip and I might stop and see who was on the courts there. And if it looked like there was somebody that needed a partner or, or whatever, or the team was practicing, I might go and change and come back with my racket on that. I was the choice of all of the tennis team. If we can play with him, let's play with him. Oh, okay. So it, it was pretty good. I actually had a, like an NCAA, NCAA ranked tennis player that was a sax player, uh, no, a clarinet player and a music major when I was in college in Arkansas. And that's where I decided I wanted to learn to play tennis, actually, even though I'd, I'd played with it off and on and everything just casually it was like this is really cool yeah. i'll never forget i can still see in my head the first day that guy unleashed a serve on me you that know you like, top didn't, even, didn't even see it right <laughs> with top spin on it uh-huh. it was like holy cow like how do you do that right. you know And, and it was just something that like really impressed me. And I'd known him a long time, but I'd never known he was a tennis player. I just known him as a clarinet player, Mm -hmm. you know, the same thing with, there was an Olympic runner that was a, that was a clarinet player in my marching band in college. And we used to play um, just tag football Mm -hmm. with the, with the band. I never forget grabbing that guy's arm, you know, like just grabbing his arm as he was running with the ball and, and he's just going like that. He's just like, I'm just dragging behind it. It's like, Oh, are you hanging on? Okay. 
It's like, like trying to like brush you off. Like I was a little bitty skinny guy, you yeah. know. Well, I was tall, but I just super skinny, like 125 pounds until I was like 35 or something, you know. <laughs> so and um and then I went to high school with an Olympic um pole vaulter um that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so it's interesting how you ask about sports and there are sports stories I have that are very unique to me, but I don't care who wins what hockey game, but my father-in-law does. And my <laughs> stepson does because he's a pretty good hockey player. Yeah. And I can tell you all about when you're directing the hockey band mm-hmm. and you see a clarinet player go like that, you know, that you means better, something's you, coming for you. You better duck because yeah. no net up there in the on the top part of that. I said, why can't you guys get a net here or something? And the new our new our, our new skating rink does have protected yeah. um, acrylic now. So our new our, our new slab of ice. Right. You got some cool random questions. I hope the answers are <laughs> interesting. No, I like them. This is good. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? My biggest kitchen mess up. Yeah. Jeez, not just a mess in the kitchen because there's always one of those. Right, sure. Uh, oh, I know. It's all, all my kids would love this. I'm going to have to give them a link right to this quote. Okay. My middle girl is a chocoholic. Okay. I'm actually a pretty good cook, but I just never do it. Okay. The reason for that's multiples, but a lot of it is is just um, when I have time, what I really want to make is food that's not good for everybody. Like I really like desserts and cakes and all of that you like the baking uh yeah yeah so anyway i decided i would make fudge oh yeah and so i went through this process of making fudge and i'd done it a couple of times maybe and then i hadn't done it for a while and like the kids said can you make fudge for us again so and it's not so you know fudge does not it's not a slow thing it takes a while you just wait and wait and wait as you heat it and stir it and add it and all that sort of stuff and then you got to wait for it to all sit and everything Mm -hmm. you can imagine like like a 10 year old girl who's a chocoholic waiting for this fudge and it's and it's like and even the process of like i would never let them have um, spoons and the and the and the pan and stuff like that sometimes depending on what it was. So anyway, I made this thing whole thing of fudge, all this all the thing, put you know, do all that. And it's all ready to go. We cut it, give it to him, and like the the boy, like he just puts everything totally in his mouth and eats it, swallows it. And she's the kind that like really wants to kind of bite in this like this. And they both did that, and I was just looking at them, and it was like they just start spitting and gagging the thing out. Uh-huh. And they said, what did you do to this? And I said, I don't know. I thought I followed the directions. And I'm reading. I said, oh, wait, no. It says a half a teaspoon of salt, not a half of a tablespoon. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> and I had put like, uh, you know, or a whole teaspoon or a, yeah, you know, yeah, I think yeah. it's a half. And I had put. Uh, you know, I had done tablespoon instead of on salt. It was the salty. It was the worst thing, yeah. you know. And and they they laugh about that. Oh, of course, so of course. That's my. That, as far as I know, I can't think of anything else. It's like you know, not burning, just burning stuff up. Or no, it's a good one. It's going. All right. 
Uh, the, the truly experience that you should make some like that just so you can taste it and see what it really tastes like. Can I can I just accept that that's how it, it went? Yes. <laughs> without without going through it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, a couple more. Jim, what is your favorite book? Do you want fiction or nonfiction? Oh, I, I'll take one of each. I don't know. I'm a science fiction. Like if I'm reading, you know, I tend to read science fiction. Okay. Um, I would say that I understand. I'll just run through this. Mm-hmm. Many people don't know that Wagner operas were published poems before he actually wrote the music and presented the opera. He wrote them in literary form first and then published them so people would read the whole story and all of that, that sort of stuff. So in a lot of ways, his ring saga and then going and doing um, Tolkien's ring, all of that mm-hmm. is very fascinating to me. I really like reading the whole Lord of the Rings thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm old enough that like they hadn't all come out. Um, you know, I could kind of read them when they came out. So yeah, that's yeah. that's a favorite. And again, it's because of the huge amount of depth of of characters and all of this and understanding all of that and fa- and fascinating what I would say. How I envision all the characters as opposed to some person in a movie early or a movie late or all that. My imagination is much better. That's all I can say in some schemes of that. Yeah. So yeah. so. I would say that that's an important book to me. And then I also really love, love the Dune series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and again, my fast, what I, what I dream up in my head is way better than the few movies that have come out sure. on that. I also am, am just going to say that um, I was having a conversation about, about what I would say is the change in education from when I was in high school, you know, to the next generation, next generation, whatever. And watching 40 years of freshmen in college come in and know stuff or don't know stuff, I'm just amazed at what people don't know. References to all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They don't, and one of those things is they don't even know that their name is biblical. So when somebody has a name and they don't even know that, oh, you're named after this character that's written over 2,000 years ago. Gotcha, yeah. And you don't know what that name means or the implications that it means when people hear that's your name, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. And so if and, and again, I don't know whether this is fiction or nonfiction. It's just a book. But I would actually say that the Bible is one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. I'm not an inherently religious person. I was raised very much in the faith um, with that. But I would say that the stories and the moral of the stories is you know if you just remove it from the Bible, it's it's pretty strong stuff sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. From the from the standpoint of oh well, you took their toy so they can have yours. You took their tire, well they can have your tire, and it, you'll do without that that whole that whole concept of all of that. Yeah. I have I have one other short book story for you. Okay, go ahead. When I was young. I had people ask me sometimes, they said, what do you do when you're when you go home from school every day? Do you just like go home and read the encyclopedias? And, and I say, actually, yes, because we had a whole set of Cyclopedia Britannica that my parents got. And the favorite parts was all the anatomy pages, like figuring out how the body all works. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is that what I do now often 
I don't come home and read encyclopedias. I come home and I write them. <laughs> and that's even rarer than the person going home and reading them. And I never wanted to do that. I still don't, but I do. Well, what's your last question now, Pete? <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, my last question is uh, what one piece of art, and this could be any form of art, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual, poetry, anything, has impacted you the most recently? That's a hard question. You can decide what, what recently means to you. I'll put it that way. I'll show you. Okay. This is very personal and it's really hard to explain. Okay. But when I was 50 years old, I married my second wife. She had three children at the time. And her oldest daughter is Clara. Mm -hmm. And Clara graduated from college, from a college, um, May 7th. Mm -hmm. And so she's, it took her four years. One of those, you know, how many of your students get done in four years <laughs> now? Okay. So she went right through, she's got very little debt. She's an awesome person. She is an artist by nature. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell a you how. artist, you mean, I assume? Yes. A painting, drawing by, by nature, but mm -hmm. she's also artistic because she grew up with her mom and I. Yeah as well as her, her, her father and her father's family. They're all very musical and all of that sort of stuff. My, my ex-wife, my second wife, mm -hmm. I've been divorced about four years. She's a fairly famous percussionist also, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in the circles that we travel. Okay. She grew up in Chicago, new music stuff. She's uh, all kinds of recordings, all kinds of new music written for her mm -hmm. uh, with major musicians, stuff like that. Um, recently, um, she's been the touring percussionist for Wayne Newton. Oh, okay. Wayne has stopped touring pretty much the last few years. I don't know that he ever will again. She judges like hit like a girl contest. Do you know okay. that contest? Mm -hmm. No. So, so, so she is someone that's very influential to me. I'm telling you this because our house has two successful percussionist ah. stuff in it. Okay. So they grow up very aware of art. And this is one of many paintings and drawings of my oldest stepdaughter. Wow. This is, this is my hand. You can see how big this is. Yeah. That is it's, called, it's called the cast of Amontillado. I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to show you up close, kind of. Yeah. How detailed all of this is. Oh, that's amazing. It, it is. Yeah. And so to me, she also does, she does a lot of these things. I don't know if the reflection is going to mess up or stuff. I don't know if you can see. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, I know what those are. Yep. Lots of doodles. This yep. is a picture of her. This is what her senior high school picture. Okay. Some of those. She's with a cow. You see that cow there? <laughs> yep. So anyway. Um, so what's really affected me, what, you know, recently is what I would say is having a child that is successful with that and her art is going to carry over into everything that she does. 
that, so I don't know if that makes answers your question or if that's appropriate or not, but. No, that's um, great. That's, that's awesome. I mean, but it's cool because that's in your, it's in your house. Like you can see that all the time and it can inspire you all the time. Yes. In other words, not only that, but it's, um, I have lots of art in my house. Let me show you another picture that she drew. Okay. This is a self portrait of her, which they did went back and did a photography kind of in a certain room. So Ooh, I, don't wow. know could, I don't, I don't, and, and that's big too. That's like, um, yeah, that's, that's my hand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, wow. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's if you if you didn't really know and it didn't quite have the pencil shading on it, you'd think it was a photograph. Now, I'm fairly artistic, but I would never attempt to do something like that. Mm-hmm. I'd have to be in a different life to say, oh, I'm going to just start doing this kind of stuff. Gotcha. You know, so I admire that. And she just takes it for granted the same way I just take it for granted that I can do a, a, a good snare drum, you know, double stroke roll or something <laughs> Like, so I got you. No, that's great. Those are, those are great. So I don't know if that's a good answer to the question or not, but it is, it it is. And it's better. And it makes it better because it's all there with you all the time. So great. Okay. Jim, we're done. Pete, thank you for offering to do this and inviting me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. This was, this was a lot of fun. Such a pleasure getting to talk to Jim for this extended period of time for the podcast. I really enjoyed getting to hear and see Jim's presentation of historical percussion, not only on this show, but also over the years at places like PASIC and NCPP. It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing Jim at many future percussion events, perhaps even in his Revolutionary War Uniform. This week's rave is the 2020 novel Deacon King Kong by James McBride. I was introduced to this novel through our local Columbia, Missouri's One Read, our annual selection of a book to be read by the greater community, which will eventually feature the author, usually in non-pandemic years, coming to the city to talk about the work and answer questions about it. Every year for the one read, while I do not particularly care which works get selected for it, I usually buy the top two choices, one of which becomes the actual one read, and read them during the summer. This year, Deacon King Kong was the runner-up, but after just finishing it, I would have recommended it to be our top selection. James McBride is a writer and novelist who may be best known for two previous works that have been put on film. Miracle at St. Anna was made into a film and directed by Spike Lee in 2008. And The Good Lord Bird, the only work of his that I've previously read and enjoyed, was made into a seven-episode series for Showtime in 2020. McBride's works focus on and are set in times of the past, but are not necessarily historical fiction. For example, Miracle at St. Anna was based on events from World War II 
and the good Lord Bird was from post-Civil War America. This next segment is all from a New York Times Top 10 Works of 2020 review. But Deacon King Kong is a work that contains multitudes and is a mystery story, a crime story, a novel, an urban farce, and a sociological portrait of late 1960s Brooklyn, New York. Now, part of the greatness of the novel is that it starts with an attempted murder between two characters we don't totally know yet, and then it expands outward from there. This expansion includes ventures into segregated black housing projects, a local church, the Italian mafia, Irish cops, and the Puerto Rican community, and all of the connections there within. Through each of these settings, McBride pushes the plot forward while also giving very detailed and specific descriptions of all of these places and persons. Each of the main characters gets a full focus and does so not only with detail and specificity, but at times simply incredible writing. He goes on some long paragraphs and sentences that are spectacular in their world building, and many of them I had to reread because I hadn't fully enjoyed them the first time. Honestly, those spots could become entire novels themselves and are worth the price of admission here. So if you're looking for an engaging, exciting read for this time and for all times, please check out Deacon King Kong by James McBride. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.